and welcome to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals. We have reached a momentous occasion. Not only was it the Love Island final last night, but it is the final episode of season one of the Best Girl Grip podcast. What a journey we've been on. I hope you felt that we've had a genuine connection and I can't wait to see where it goes from here. Uh, In all seriousness, I've had a smorgasbord of amazing guests and I want to thank everyone that has come on the podcast so far because without their time or enthusiasm for the idea, this definitely wouldn't exist. It feels really special to introduce my guest for this finale episode, producer Sarah Brocklehurst, because five years ago I went to an event organised by Underwire Film Festival called Women Write Comedy, where she was a speaker. And I remember finding her really inspirational then. I wrote a whole blog post about the day um, and even plucked up the courage to go and speak to her about her career. So to then be hosting this podcast episode where we talk explicitly about just that feels really serendipitous. Also, I'm just going to read a small sentence from the blog about Sarah's advice for young filmmakers because I think it still stands and is a real testament to her tenacity. Don't wait around for others to give you the opportunities you seek. If you want to produce, go out and produce. If you want to direct, then get hold of a camera. Trust your ambition, learn from your mistakes, persevere and work very hard. And it's incredibly exciting that that hard work is paying off for Sarah, a BAFTA-nominated producer whose latest project, Animals, is being released in UK cinemas this Friday, the 2nd of August, courtesy of Picture House. It's directed by Sophie Hyde, whose debut film was 52 Tuesdays, which I urge you to find and watch if you haven't already. And Animal stars Holiday Granger and Alia Shawkat as two party-loving best friends who navigate the ups and downs of life in Dublin. At once a celebration of female friendship and an examination of the choices we make when facing a crossroad, Animals is an honest, funny, edgy, unconventional and bittersweet snapshot of modern women, based on the novel by Emma Jane Unsworth, who also wrote the script. And to get you in the mood for this dazzling, riotous and refreshing new film, here is an excerpt from the trailer. (sighs) Girls are tied to beds for two reasons. Sex and exorcisms. So which was it with you? (laughs) What do you use for bitters? Ground up paracetamol. Nice! What do you say your name was again? Chicken sandwich. Mm, That's a beautiful name. (laughs) We are going deep tonight. You're my team! They're going to build a statue of us. Immortalized in marble. This is the bit where I puke. (laughs) The golden years. (sighs) So, what do you do? I'm a writer. I'm trying to nail the work-life balance. Sooner or later, the party has to end. Why? (laughs) Tyler, this is Jim. Make way. My friend's lover is the man of the hour. Does he play the piano like he's making love to a beautiful woman? You know, none of this changes our friendship. Mm. Huh? What do you think, so savages? We are savages. <laughs> Will you be my matron of honor? I'll be your matron of dishonor. Would you like some fizz while you're looking? It's complimentary. Yes. Bonjour. How could you resist? This is the kind of drink that undresses you. Breastfeeding! 
What's an animal's primary need? Food. Sex. Safety. Was any of it real? <laughs> All of it. So Sarah and I chat extensively about pulling that production together, from hearing about the book on Twitter to premiering it at Sundance earlier this year. We talk about the advantages of running your own company from home and how she stayed motivated during the funding and pre-production process. This is episode 29 of Best Girl Grip. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, where it always start is kind of your sort of step into the film world. And I know your background was quite theatrical. Can you tell me when you went to university, what you studied, and how you came into the film industry? So, I studied English at Cambridge, um, and I chose to go to Cambridge because there is such a strong theatrical scene there and it really was my intention right from the start to basically just do loads and loads of plays mm. and um and and that's what i did um, and i worked on about 20 productions okay. during my three years at university in a, a variety of, of different roles mm. i acted a lot i directed um i stage managed i even production designed uh, one musical and I discovered producing in um, I think in my first year and I realised that this was really what I loved and um, and what I was very good at and so I started producing. I also became involved in the Amateur Dramatic Club and I became president of the AGC which involved programming all the productions for, for, the, for the student theatre which gave me quite a lot of experience in um, assessing applications, assess reading scripts, thinking about budgets, thinking about audience. And I guess overall, it really was three years of um, being able to sort of play and practice amateur theatre and comedy. Um, and I produced the Footlights shows, including a big um, national tour as well. And so, yeah, I gained quite a lot of experience in producing in managing people, in um, balancing creative ambitions with with practical and budgetary mm. constraints, and um, and I realised that's what I wanted to do to do in in life. And Footless is a sketch group, right? So that must have kind of given me quite a good way of dealing with improv and not yes. knowing what's going to happen. It, exactly, exactly. Yes, it was um, a sketch show that toured around the country and did a residency at the Pleasance in Edinburgh. And um, yes, it changed every night. It was very unpredictable. And we, you know, there were five performers and me and a couple of technicians. And uh, we drove around in a van and then a couple of cars and made lots of mistakes and learned a lot and learned how to work with each other very well as well. But yes, it was um, it was uh, a challenge in terms of um, dealing with each night being very different to the previous night. And was your intention at that point to go into theatre? You sort of thought that that was where your career was going to take you? Definitely. I always loved film, but I had no idea how you would work in film. Mm -hmm. And I never really thought that that was something that was available. Whereas theatre, I always did plays as a kid and at school and, and then at university and I think there was just a clearer sort of sense of how I might go into that. Um, however, I did go to law school for a year oh, after wow. I graduated from Cambridge oh. um, 
Uh, and that didn't work out very well for me, and I hated it. And I, and I why, left. Why kind of the move away from theatre? Um, Needed stability. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, there was pressure to to pick a proper profession, and um, I was always and I remain very interested in law, but um, not more so than producing. But then, even the legal aspect can be then helpful maybe down the line? It has been really helpful, yeah. yes, definitely. I don't have any specific qualifications, but certainly I have a confidence with contracts that I may not have had in the same way. And did you know at the stage of being involved in theatre at Cambridge that your production capacity there would could be transferable to the film industry, or that wasn't even the kind of in your thought process at the time? It never even occurred to me that I could or would ever mm-hmm. work in film. I mm-hmm. thought... Um, I thought I'd work in theatre, probably. So what was your first job in the film? I've never had a job in film. You went straight into your own production company, setting up your own production company in theatre? Um, well, I had jobs in theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked... Uh, actually, I worked as a... Well, before theatre, when I was still thinking about law, I worked as a paralegal um, in a very small firm. And weirdly, I actually worked on a lot of film finance transactions mm-hmm. because... Part of the one of the clients that the firm represented um, had an EIS fund, and um, I didn't really understand or you know I wasn't that sort of um, that as interested in it then as I certainly am now. But I did come across things like that, so I had a job as a paralegal, um, and then when I when I finished the the, the frolic in the legal industry, mm-hmm. I had um, a job as an assistant to the producers at the Royal Shakespeare Company and then I worked as a production assistant and an apprentice producer um, for a really amazing West End and Broadway producer Mm -hmm. called Sonia Friedman and um, and so I had a lot of experience in commercial theatre. And from there? And then during that time while I was assisting uh, at the RSC and then with Sonia Friedman um, I made a feature film. Okay. Called Black Pond. Yeah. And Black Pond was written and directed by uh, my friends who I had produced the Footlights tour okay. show with a few years before. Right. And so, so it, who were my friends from university. So it came from a relationship that was already established. So do you think that's what gave you the confidence to think I can well, produce this because I, I just know the people that I'm working with? Exactly. Exactly. Um, because I produced the plays and the comedy that um, that we'd worked on and because we were all friends and because it was it was just an idea of okay well we're going to go and make a film because why not and um and I didn't know anything about filmmaking um from a you know from a practical point of view let alone from a business point of view which I really didn't have any experience in but Will and Tom knew a lot and they they knew they had a very strong vision of what they wanted to do and I knew how to bring money together and organise things and we would just see how how it went. Um, so yeah, so I you know I took I mean it really was, you know, it wasn't full time because obviously I was working full time, um, but um I took some annual leave when we shot the film and um I was, you know, as involved as I could be, um, but definitely Will and Tom were the um, you know, the principal sort of driving force of it and um and I think it's really down to how you know, how talented and how how brilliant they were that the film um, was as was as good and as successful as it became for something that cost, you know, twenty five thousand mm-hmm. pounds and that we really slightly shuffled together. And did you have any role models or mentors at that stage of or a template for how to produce a film? Who were you looking to? 
Oh, no one at all. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's. I really wasn't thinking about it that much. It was sort of something that I felt like I was doing, you know, on a summer holiday. It was because because I was working in theatre and because my my brain was very much about producing shows in the West End and working on these big productions as an assistant. I don't think I realised, yeah, how, how big a deal the film could be. Um, and I certainly didn't have any producing mentors or role models at, at that point. I, I got some later, but not at that point. And um, the person who was really instrumental in, in us planning back on that, she was Ben Wheatley, um, who the directors had got to know through um, uh, an ad agency that they shared with him. And he had spoken to us about um, how he made Down Terrace for very, very little money and sort of shown, showed us how it was possible to, um, to be really, really bare bones about things and just to, to not wait for permission yeah. from, you know, from proper funders, mm. but just to get up, get out there and do it. And um, so he definitely was somebody who was, um, who was very inspiring and, yeah. and, and helpful in, in letting us think that we could go and do it. What are some examples of that, of where you can kind of be cost efficient, and, but not compromise on creativity? Well, you just... You don't. You have to write a script that can be shot cheaply, mm. and I guess one of the big areas is locations. And um, so we didn't pay for any locations, mm. and we were lucky through you know people's friends, parents, whatever houses mm. that um, that uh, that we didn't have to pay for any locations. We didn't really. I mean, I would never do this again. And um, uh, but you know, we really didn't pay people you know, very much, if, if anything mm. at all, but everybody, and we had a crew of about four people, Wow. Um, you know, and we were sharing bunk beds and dorm rooms and hostels, and, you know, it was very much, it was the, yeah, the, the reality was quite studenty, but the creative aspiration was, you know, was mighty. Will was acting in casualty at the time, and we borrowed um, a wheelchair, uh, that we used as a dolly, so you know, so, <laughs> um, and um, you know our, our DOP Simon. Most of his work had been as an operator, and so you know for him it was an opportunity to to have a different role. And so it was really, I think it's important with anything that's low budget. You have to think, okay, well, why would people want to do this? Because certainly not for a lot of money, and um, that it might be to have an opportunity um, professionally that they haven't been given before, and also obviously to work with people that they think might be who, people who they think are talented and they like the script, and that might then you know lead to to further collaborations. And how did that change your career? Because I know it was, as you say, very successful, and you went on to be nominated for BAFTA, and that must have been quite overwhelming, but opened a lot of doors. Did it feel that way? Did it kind of change very quickly or? Definitely. I didn't expect any of that and it really took me by surprise and was certainly very overwhelming and I mean and incredible. You know, it was completely incredible that a film that you know that I produced while working in a you know slightly different industry went on to to have that recognition and Yes, definitely for me it changed everything because it allowed me to quit my job and um, throw myself into film um, to see that that was even possible and that became incredibly exciting and um, an avenue which um, which I didn't think was accessible beforehand. And then suddenly it was very accessible in terms of, you know, people wanted to meet. But then I had to, actually had to learn 
how to actually make films mm-hmm. and um, you know in terms of yeah how to how to how to actually produce a film properly mm-hmm. so then I made a short in order to actually learn yeah, how to okay. make a film <laughs> after the short <laughs> not often the way it goes yeah so I've never worked in film apart from okay. the projects that I've produced myself I don't know in hindsight is mad but I don't know I think everyone has very different paths um, there's no there's no clear roadmap of how to be a producer certainly it would have been great to learn you know and to, and to have the security of being you know working in companies and getting to know people that way but um, that wasn't how it turned out mm. for me and before we kind of move on to setting up your own company and running that how would you describe the role of a producer from your experience of doing it there are so many different types of producers um, for me what I love about producing is balancing the creative and the business and I definitely consider myself a creative producer I'm usually one of the first people if not the first involved in a project um, and I see it through every single step of the way in a very very committed and hands-on way right up to the end and the life cycle of a project can be you know many many years I mean, it's now five and a half years since I optioned the book animals which is you know coming out this summer and um and I'll probably end up working on it for you know certainly another year or two Mm -hmm. but actually probably a long time into the future as well and you know when we sell other rights or other sort of further distribution cycles um but I really see the role as um as a very creative role but also it is about managing people and it's about managing budgets and it's about managing schedules and it's about raising money it's about making something that exists only in the minds of the creatives and the producers who dream it up at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it's about making that a reality. And that involves a lot of people and a lot of different concerns and a lot of money often. And so it's balancing the creative with the business and balancing the creative with the market and the audience and trying to, to understand while developing a project who is going to see it how much that's worth and therefore how much money you can raise to substantiate the market value and the audience potential for the project. And so it's sort of balancing all those considerations while trying to make something creatively strong, distinctive and supporting the talent who all have their own very particular talents and skills and to try to get the best out of everybody's mm. everybody's different roles in order to create something that overall is really brilliant and will find an audience. It sounds like you're the mother ship of like a massive brood and you're you're having to kind of look after everyone at the same time. It's a lot of that and there's definitely there's definitely smothering and there's a lot of being the therapist mm. as well, but also being the manager. It's so many things. And it's you know, I love I love making deals. I love raising money. Mm. I love dealing with investors. Um, I mean, it's not always nice and easy, but it's um, but it's part of it. It's a really important part of it, and it gives me a thrill. Mm. I love uh, negotiation and legals, and so the business side of it I find really exciting, and the creative side is, is what it's all about, um, and the idea of telling you know great stories and having them find audiences and the impact that that can have. Mm you know, is a real driving force in all of it. But I love how varied um, the job is. 
you think it's important to have that love of the business side? Because often I would think that maybe it might be just like it just it's just necessary in order to facilitate the creativity. Like maybe not a lot of people get a real joy out of doing those kind of things. Do you think it's kind of maybe easier to, to have that shared passion for both? I think it is important because we spend so much time reading contracts and negotiating deals and looking at finance plans and budgets. And if if all of that is a chore, then then perhaps there are other jobs where you don't have to do all of those, you know, those those things. Um, I don't know. I think it certainly helps me that um, that I have a, a confidence and a and a relative enjoyment of um, of that aspect. But I think also the thing to remember is that it it isn't supposed to be sort of dry and a necessary burden financing contracts and things like that. All of that should exist to support the creative ambitions and they should sort of balance out that, you know, it's like making a film for the right budget according to what it's about mm-hmm. and who's involved. And, and so the business aspect is really about audience and market and therefore valuing projects correctly. Um, so it all should all complement the intention. And I think also... And it depends, and there's different types of projects, but films are a very, very expensive thing to make. You know, it isn't one person in a room writing a, a novel or a short story. It involves a lot of people, a lot of money, a lot of risk. And therefore, you know, I do think the business aspect is important to be sort of, yeah, taken seriously alongside the, um, you know, the story and the creative intention. And can require quite a lot of creative thinking, I imagine, as well, kind of fitting all the pieces of the puzzle together. Like, I know Animals was a co-production, so when you're kind of drawing finance from, like, all these different areas, yeah, it can require, yeah, a lot of puzzle. Definitely. Definitely. And um, we had a really, really hard time financing animals. Mm. I think we I think we spent about two and a half years actually just raising money, and we had some money, and we lost it, and we had to get some other, some more. Um and there are certainly huge decisions that we had to make. The biggest one was to relocate the story from Manchester to Dublin. And that was principally for financial reasons, um, because we were able to, to get some investment from Screen Ireland um, and use the Irish tax credit. And that was a huge creative decision as much as anything else. And it was a very difficult one. And I remember getting on the train to Brighton to go and see Emma Jane Unsworth, who wrote the novel and the screenplay. And um, and I went and took her for lunch, and I explained to her that we probably would have to move the location of the story in order to actually make the film. And Manchester, you know, was a very, very dear place to her, because that's, you know, that's where she grew up, that's where the book is set. Mm. Those characters are very much, you know, they're in Manchester. It was also actually... I mean, it was a very emotive time because it was just a few weeks after the Ariana Grande concert and we were really, we really wanted to tell a story about women in Manchester. So there were lots of reasons why that was such, you know, it was a big decision, but in the end, we just really wanted to make the film and we knew that the heart and soul of the film lay more within the characters than the city. And as it turns out, Dublin has a similar beating heart to Manchester and it was absolutely perfect for, for the story, which is about these two young women who are very literary and very boozy and Dublin is um, you know an ideal place to to set them and it's a beautiful place to shoot in so it worked out really well but yeah certainly the financial and business constraints then affected the creative decisions that we had to make um, unfortunately you know for the better I think. 
So let's get back to you quit your job in theatre to set up your own production company. Is it, you went straight into doing that? Pretty much. Yeah. So I quit my job in theatre um, and I set up um, a production company originally um, as a sole trader and I was producing plays for a little while um, and raising money for those and um, and working with writers and putting those together and I produced a play at the German Street Theatre and um, and a series of plays at the Young Vic. So, and while doing that, I was learning how to work in film and starting to develop projects. Um, I was teaching during most of this time. There were many irons in the fire, and you know, I set up a production company, but it really, it, it really didn't feel like that. It was just me, and uh, and I operated as a sole trader for for a few years, but up until. Um, I started optioning material, then I had to um, incorporate the company and have it as a limited company because as soon as you start having the rights to things, you don't want to be personally liable for, uh, for, those, for those contracts. Optioning something is actually something I've never covered on the podcast before, so I'm quite interested to hear about how that process goes. So it, let's talk about it in terms of animals. Sure. You read the book and then where do you go from there? Yes. Uh, so... I found out about animals about six months before it was published, okay. and I was just scrolling through Twitter of a Sunday morning, um, and I saw Catelyn Moran discussing animals with some other journalist, I can't remember who, um, and saying, oh, have you read this? It's amazing. Yeah, I just reviewed it for whatever magazine. Um, it's so funny. It's so brilliant. It's like with men and I, but with girls. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I need to try and dig this book out. And so um, so I did some digging online and I found the publisher and I found the, um, the author's agent uh, at Curtis Brown. And I wrote to her and I said, I really want to read this book. Are the rights available? And she sent me a PDF and I read it in, in one sitting feverishly. <laughs> and I knew that I really, really, really wanted to option it and I really wanted to produce it. And those characters just really spoke to me. I was the same age as them and all that sort of thing. So I said to Camilla at Curtis Brown, I really want to meet Emma. Um, I'm sure there's loads of attention for this book, as there was. And I met Emma and I just aggressively wooed her, um, <laughs> really. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of competition. There were a lot of other producers, much more established um, and with much deeper pockets than, than I had. But what the, you know, the way that I was able to to persuade Emma to work with me and to trust me with her brilliant book is that I understood the characters um, and I understood the type of film that we ought to make with it and I wasn't going to sanitise these these women and their story and I was going to make something that was going to be brilliant and truthful and bold and uncompromising and, um, and we got on very well and we both took a punt on one another um, because I had black pond, which was, you know, a great thing to show and talk about. Um, but this was certainly something of a much bigger scale that, you know, than anything I'd worked on before. Um, and for Emma, it was her first screenplay. And I said to her, you know, would you like to write it? She really wanted to. And perhaps other producers or sort of bigger companies wouldn't have taken the chance on the novelist adapting their own material, but I was delighted to. Um, and so it became, it has become a very fruitful, really wonderful relationship and collaboration uh, that now extends across many projects that we have together. And, you know, I'm working on um, the adaptation of her next book, which comes out in February, among many other projects that we have together. So that punt that we took on one another, mm. you know, right, right from the start, it's really paid off. And ultimately, you know, making a film that we're really, really proud of exactly in the way that we envisaged and first set out to do. 
And how did you come across Sophie Hyde? Because she's Australian, so that that seemed like quite an out there kind of choice for director. So Emma and I developed the script together with support from Creative England and with Selena Dowd, who was our exec there. And so we developed the script together for a couple of years, I think. Um, and then once we were ready to approach directors, we were really adamant that we would only consider female directors. Mm-hmm. We didn't want it to be a first feature because we thought that the film needed some scale and we really wanted you know, fantastic actors. And sometimes that can be quite difficult with, with first features. So, so we were looking at female directors who had made one, at least one, brilliant first feature that had garnered attention from high-profile festivals and awards and things like that, and who, um, you know, potentially would get on with the subject matter, which is quite funny, quite edgy. And so we started putting together a list, and it was really difficult. Happily, it would be easier now, but... um, However many years ago, it was quite difficult to find mm-hmm. British directors. Like there were, I guess there were a lot of amazing directors, but who then only work on their own scripts. It was really, it was really difficult. And so it occurred to me after a while that we'd have to look abroad. And I was always thinking about, you know, it always felt like a Sundance film. So I was thinking about films that I had loved at Sundance or seen that had done, um, that had premiered at Sundance from previous years and I met an agent, an American agent at, um, well she's Australian actually, but um, at the American agency UTA um, and she had read the script and she championed it within the agency and she suggested a few directors to meet and one of those was Sophie um, and um, and I loved 52 Tuesdays, I thought it was such an incredible film, really distinctive, really incredibly sensitive and brave vision um, with a very strong directorial voice. Um, And so we sent the script to Sophie. She read it and then read the book straight away and she loved it. And she pitched really, really, really hard for it, which is always amazing. And she wrote Emma and I this sort of 10-page letter with loads of references and images and... You know, and it was so she just really got it. Um, she really loved the characters, she loved the focus on the female body, and um, and and we shared a lot of sensibilities and politics and ambitions mm-hmm. with her. And so, you know, I Skyped with her a few times and then again and then with Emma as well. And we just felt really strongly that that she was she was the director for us. And as a producer, what was it like working because obviously Emma was quite a big part of the process as well, working with a writer and director and balancing kind of those two visions. Did it all feel like it coalesced quite well? It worked really beautifully, but I think it can only do so when when the visions are aligned. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's what you're trying to determine when you're I guess interviewing directors and we were very very in tune the three of us and it was just the three of us for you know for a little while and we loved each other as women and got on yeah just you know got on really well and we had you know a very shared vision for the film. Um, and how did it kind of come together from an international perspective because obviously Australian director set in Dublin you've got an American and British lead actresses together. So did that feel like it helps the idea of it being able to transcend it being a British film and kind of you know, premiere at Sundance and sell to other markets? So we hired Sophie, who's mm-hmm. an Australian director, and she was absolutely 
the best person for the job, but it made it very difficult to raise money right. in the UK with an Australian director. Understandably, because, you know, the BFI, for example, you know, it's lottery funding, it's public money, they should be, they exist to, to champion British talent. So long story short, we didn't get any British money. But uh, the Australian funders obviously wanted to support Sophie. And so we, the first pieces of investment that we had were from Australia. Um, so at first I thought we'd set up an Australian-British co-production and I would try to raise more money in, in the UK and we would try and make that work. And that ended up just being really difficult. Um, and so eventually um, the idea of Ireland came about and we secured investment from Screen Ireland and it became then an official treaty um, Irish-Australian co-production, but with me and my British production company as the lead producer. Right. There were eight different financiers from four different countries in the end, including Finland. Okay. So it was, you know, it took two and a half years to raise all this money and there was a lot of different parties and it was really, really complicated. Um, but that's what we had to do in order to make it um, and to make it the way we wanted to, the people that we wanted. It was a really international production. Mm-hmm. So we had um, a lot of creatives from Australia and a lot of creatives from Ireland. We had a few Brits, um, Holiday Granger, who's British, Annie Shawcat, who's American. And yeah, it was a truly international production. And I think what's amazing about that is that when we all got to Dublin and started working together, we had to work really hard to make sure that um, that the team were, you know, were really gelling really well together. And um, and I think that brought, you know, a real a real spirit of collaboration, of shared ownership in the in the project. And lots of people were, you know, relocated to Dublin, and so it meant that on the weekends and everything, we all hung out. We we had mad parties. We 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 caught the spirit of animals. Probably the thing that we had to consider the most was the authenticity of it being in Dublin, having the two lead actresses not, you know, not from Ireland. Holiday Granger was doing um, an Irish accent. Um, so we had a lot of, you know, we, we really needed to make sure that we weren't just setting it there for the sake of it. We wanted to make sure that we were really embedded in in the city. And Sophie and Brian, her DOP and editor and partner, they both they both threw out to Dublin, you know, way before prep started and really, really worked very hard to immerse themselves in the city. And it was really important that we had fantastic production designer, location manager, costume designer from Dublin who, you know, who really made sure that the the detail and the textures and the tones of of the city were authentic. Having it premiere in front of an American audience, I know Sundance kind of draws people from all over, but obviously that was that must be huge. It was incredible. It was really overwhelming, to be honest, because we premiered in the Eccles Theatre, which mm. seats thirteen hundred people, and I've never in my life experienced premiering a film, something that's such a passion project. You know, my baby mm. in front of that many people on, you know, a, a stage, uh, you know, that feels iconic in uh, in the history of cinema. It was it was incredible. Um, it was interesting from an audience point of view because they, it's, it's mainly American audiences and the Q&As were quite interesting. Um, they didn't necessarily get the drinking in mm. the film as much as British audiences do. There were questions sort of asking like, oh, are they addicts? And so we're like, no, they're just, they're just, just average. 
Um, so that was quite interesting. Yeah, it was amazing to promote Sandbox. It's an incredible festival. It really is, you know, in terms of independent film, you know, I mean, it's 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 a dream to to be to be part of to be part of their program. Um, and we also premiered at Sundance London um, at the end of May, uh, and that was the most fantastic launch for the UK, um, and to be highlighted there and to be able, you know, I really felt, Emma and I really felt that we were bringing the film home, and to be able to do that at Picture House Central and Picture House Sorrel, UK distributor, yeah, it was just really perfect. So exciting as well for it to sort of, yeah, big summer release. It's really exciting. Picture House, um, Claire Binns and Paul Ridd, um acquired the film um, after seeing it at the premiere in Sundance um, and they they really they loved it and they responded really strongly to it and they have been the most fantastic partners in uh, in now this sort of building up towards the release which will be on the 2nd of August and I think they're going to release it on about 80 screens across the country which um, you know is incredible for a you know for a, for an indie movie um, and I really hope that we'll you know be able to find that audience um, and I think they've created you know amazing trailer and really great artwork that shows the film you know shows this with the tone of the film but also shows how commercial it can be so yeah it's really exciting to work with good distributors and it's really hard to find you know it's really hard for any film to find um, to get a UK release mm. um, so yeah so we're really happy to be working with them. And in terms of balancing other projects, because you're ushering this through from, you know, five years ago, you said you optioned it through to now, are you then developing other projects on the side? And then also in terms of how are you balancing your own personal life? How does that work? (laughs) (laughs) Like, just, yeah. I'm always working on a a lot of projects. Um, uh, At the moment, I have six features and two TV shows slate and um, and everything's at different stages and so I think it's really important to to be working on a number of projects and it's necessary because sometimes a writer's off writing for a few months and you know you need to be working on something else I think I mean Animals was has been I guess at the forefront of my work for a long time but alongside that I'm always developing other scripts um, uh, and you know I'm always meeting new filmmakers and reading new books and, you know, trying to, to build the rest of my slate as well. Um, but certainly once you once you start assembling the production finance and, and gearing up, then that really does take over. So it is quite difficult to find sometimes. Mm-hmm. But um, it's about finding projects that you really care about and, and then you, you know, you ensure that everything's sort of prioritised appropriately. What kind of stories do speak to you? What are you looking to tell as a producer? I think for me as a producer, it's really important. I, I want to be choosing projects that I have a, a real strong, often personal connection with the material. Invariably, I'm choosing projects um, that are led by female characters. Mm-hmm. Invariably, I'm choosing projects that deal with issues close to my heart in terms of immigration and identity and feminism. And I guess, you know, it's only natural that I'm going to be attracted to stories that speak to me personally and therefore having you know a universality probably but I think I'm much more it's certainly become a more formal mission statement that I want to be making stories that are about and for and led by women Um, and has the company grown beyond you you said you were operating as a sole trader is it kind of developed it's really just me and that's always the way that I wanted to work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm very happy this way. It's it's really just me. I partner up with other producers on certain projects. I have an excellent um, working relationship with my lawyer and I think that each to their own, but for me, you know, I could produce anywhere with a laptop and a mobile phone mm-hmm. and I like the freedom to to work completely on my own terms. And that's why I set out to do this, um, because I can't really bear to work for anyone else. Um, I can't bear offices and I... I just, I like independence and being able to plan my week, my year, my life and take full responsibility for that myself. How do you work? What does your day-to-day look like? What do your hours look like? So I'm perhaps quite unusual in that I just work from home. Mm-hmm. I just work by myself from mm-hmm. home and that suits me so perfectly because I don't really, I don't really like the idea of going to an office. I don't really see the point. I want to keep the overheads of my company as low as possible and I just need absolute quiet most of the time um, in order to read and think and talk on the phone without feeling self-conscious um, and so yes yeah, so I, work, I work from home and I set my own hours you know according to what's happening and according to how I feel I tend to wake up really early and you know sort of work I don't know maybe from seven thirty to 9 and then I'll probably go to the gym and then I'll come back. Um, and I really like, I love working early in the morning because actually you're, you're sending everybody emails before they get to work. And, um, and when I was working with Australia, um, in terms of time zones, yeah. that made a lot of sense. So, um, so I guess I'm in the habit of that. I don't feel bound to a, you know, like a, a nine to six. And I probably, you know, work longer hours than I would if I was in an office. It depends. I'm quite good now at setting boundaries and ensuring that people know that, you know, I'm not going to turn around notes over the weekend with no notice. Mm-hmm. I probably do usually work like one day over the weekend, but that will only ever be just to read right. and to watch and to think about things. Mm-hmm. It's important to have a private life and have a, you know, a fun life that isn't just about work um, and I'm only just now sort of getting to that balance. Definitely when I was raising money for animals, I thought of absolutely nothing else. And it really was all-consuming and it was emotionally very exhausting because it really felt that that was the only thing that was, you know, happening in my life. And therefore, when it was going wrong or badly, um, the pain of it felt all the greater because it really felt that if I can't get this together, then then I'm, you know, I'm not a producer mm. and my friends and my family and everyone who, you know, has been supportive and slightly hopeful about what I'm doing, but that they'll all lose faith in, in, in me and my ability to achieve this career that I've set for myself. So I felt the stakes were really high and, um, and I think now I sort of feel more confident in my career as a producer that, um, you know, I, I can feel more capable of balancing, you know, my personal life alongside my profession. But at the end of the day, you know, having your own business and setting out and this sort of job is all-consuming. Um, and um, and that's what I love about it as well, that it's not just a job, it is really, um, you know, it's a life that you set for yourself and you care about it um, and you want to, you know, and you want to work really, really hard to achieve what you set out to do. Did you ever feel like it wouldn't come together at those moments where it was really hard? And how did you maintain the self-belief in, in putting it together? I think 
tenacity and persistence are the most important qualities for a producer because you have a lot of rejection and a lot of people say no and a lot of things go wrong all the time at every possible moment and so you have to you have to believe so passionately in the project because otherwise it would just be so easy to give up and certainly there were so many moments where I thought oh my god how are we going to make this happen but I, I knew that we would like I knew I, w- I wouldn't ever stop I'd still be trying to raise the money now. Thank God we're not. Um, but um, but I knew because I always knew that it was really good. Like I knew the book was great. I knew the script was great. I knew the director was great. I knew the cast was great. I knew there was an audience for it, and I knew that it was something that people really, the right people, will love. And so, for X Y Z reasons, when certain financiers didn't come on board, I didn't let that bother me. I just thought, okay, not for you. You don't get it, or it doesn't work with your agenda. Fine, and you just move on. And so you kind of have to. You have to be quite tough about that, and um, and you have to just yeah, really, really believe in it, so that when other people reject it, it doesn't harm your confidence in the project itself. Is there a woman whose work you think is particularly undervalued that you wish to spotlight? I'd love to spotlight Alana Olivia, who is a multi-talented, brilliant actress, writer, director. She's half Cypriot, half Egyptian, and I think she's a fantastic filmmaker. I watched uh, a short film of hers recently, just called Tar Off, and I just thought it was the most brilliant and distinctive portrayal of family and identity and grief and anger and all the things sort of close to my heart. And I think she's just starting to develop her first um, feature. And I think she's somebody who has a really, really interesting voice, really, really interesting take on genre. And I'm really excited to see what um, what she does. And finally, um, is there a film that you've seen that you think deserves more attention by a woman director? Yes. I saw, I saw this film at London Film Festival a few years ago, and then I watched it again on Netflix recently, and it's Divine by Huda Benyamina, okay. who's a French director. And it's such a brilliant, such a brilliant film. Um, you know, it's, it played at Cannes and it played at a, a few different festivals, but it's the most wonderful film about, about female friendship, about crime, about hustling, about, you know, these young women in, um, you know, growing up in poverty, but with huge dreams of, you know, of making money and of making this life themselves. It's got such swagger. It's really, really funny and it has, you know, the most kind of inventive and glorious sort of filmmaking choices. Um, It's just a film that I really, really loved um, and I'd love more people to watch it. And it's great that it's on Netflix and, um, you know, if you can sort of, if you can find it there, then yeah, I really recommend it. Amazing recommendations. Thank you so much, Sarah. This has been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Sarah for coming on the podcast and thank you for downloading and listening to this episode.
Animals is in cinemas from Friday and I can't stress enough how important it is to support films like these that are written, produced and directed by women and have kick-ass women in front of and behind the camera on their opening weekends. So go, go, go and get your butts on those cinema seats. The podcast will be on a two-month hiatus, but you can listen to all of season one on iTunes, Spotify and Acast. And finally, I have an exciting announcement that is coming very soon, so keep your eye on my Twitter at StoneColdFox this Thursday for a pod-related reveal. Have amazing summers! This has been Best Girl Grip, Season 1. Mm-hmm.